Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Sometimes we begin our messages with a story or a metaphor. Today I want to start by giving you an anchor for life. And it's right there in that last verse. But this anchor truth has been for me something I've repeated over and over to myself. Because when the waves of life come crashing in, you need something to hold on to. And so I want to draw our attention to verse 33 and maybe even just memorize these words this morning as we get started. This is what John says in chapter 16, verse 33. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. There's two truths in that verse and one command. The two truths. You will have suffering in this world. The other truth, I have conquered this world. And the command, be courageous. This the context here of what's happening here in chapter 15, chapter 16, like he's talking specifically about the type of suffering that we have and may experience as Christians, and maybe not so much here right now, but in other parts of the world, the type of suffering that you face when you follow Christ. But I think that what he's saying here applies to all kinds and every kind of suffering and hardships that we'll face in this life, because inevitably, guys, we're all going to face hardships at some point in life. It's a matter of fact in this world that at some point you're going to face hardships and suffering in this life. If you're not now, it will happen inevitably. And I believe that a majority of like Christian heartache and angst can just be eliminated if we actually understand what is in this anchor, this truth here, that you will have suffering in this world. We shouldn't be shocked when hardships hit us. Like that shouldn't be something that we look at and go, what is happening? Guys, honestly, I don't know what your life is like. I've not experienced a lot of hardships. My family's relatively healthy. I've never been harassed personally for being a Christian. And, and in my life, I've experienced a few deaths, but they were kind of of the, the kind that maybe you expected, you know, grandparents aging, things like that. But there have been seasons in my life where I've looked at my life circumstances and looked up at God and said, I didn't sign up for this. And in those days, what Jesus has said back is he said, so what did you sign up for? Anybody ever had a moment like that? You will have suffering in this world, but the second truth statement, I have conquered the world. I love that. There's there's so much confidence in this statement here. I mean, he's speaking of everything in this world that's broken and wrong and suffering in the same way that I talk about how I conquered kindergarten. And what's great here is (laughs) he hasn't even gone to the cross yet. His burial and resurrection hasn't even taken place yet, but he's at this point, he's calling his shot. He's pointing forward to his death, burial, and resurrection and to this eternal and secure victory that he has for us. And so now there is this unshakable hope for our souls. That yes, you'll have suffering in this world, but I have conquered this world. And that's this command, to be courageous. Courageous 
means to have the ability to face difficulty, danger, or pain without fear. I found it interesting. I was actually reading in the book of Revelation this past week, and this, this caught my attention as it relates to courage. Maybe you've read this passage before. I'm, I'm highlighting something here that it's possible you've missed. This is Revelation 21, says this. It speaks to the importance of courage. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, right? John's talking about things yet to come. When God comes back and makes everything new. I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new and said, right because these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give freely to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. And the one who conquers, same word that's in verse 33, God is looking for conquerors. And the one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, theirs will be the share in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It always catches me that in the list of like all the things that lands a person in hell, that first to be mentioned is the coward, the faithless. This command, right? That you will have suffering in this world, be courageous, I have overcome the world. The importance of being courageous in this life, no matter what we face, is incredibly important. And so the question this morning that we have to ask is how, how are we to be courageous? Or if you want another way to ask the question, when the Christian life gets hard, and it inevitably will, where do we find our strength? And our text answers that question today. And I'm just total spoiler alert, because I really don't want you to miss this. The answer is not that you just need to develop a stiff upper lip and grit your teeth and get through it. That will get you nowhere. So let's dive into our text. Hopefully you have your Bibles out in front of you. Notice the context of where we're at. In last week's text, as we talked through it, Jesus had promised them, he said, hey, the world is going to hate you. And if the world persecuted me, it's going to persecute you. And now today he's building on it with these words, they will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone, this is new, who kills you, not just hate, not just persecute. Now we're talking about they're going to ban you from the synagogues. All that you know, as far as religious and social life, they're going to ban you from the synagogue and they're going to kill you. And those who kill you will think that they're offering a service to God. 
And they will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. Now, I don't want to go through these words too quickly because there's a tremendous amount of personal pain in here for John as he pens these words. It's similar to like if you've had a friend who's in the midst of awful suffering and you, because of your closeness to them, like you know the raw details of what they're going through. But then you hear them when somebody else asks them like, hey, how are you doing? They just make the simple statement, kind of passing through it like, you know, there's been some rough days, but we're, we're getting through. And you know, as you said, they're like, there's more to that statement than that person could even realize. That's what's happening here. Understand that there is a, a gap between when Jesus speaks these words and when John writes them down. And John has lived the reality in between there. He's seen these words of warning played out in his life. I'll never forget when I was going through uh, getting my master's degree and I was sitting through New Testament survey with Dr. Tom Niehoff. And he just unpacked for us, just kind of quickly in the class, the sufferings of John. I'm just going to try to connect a few things here. Maybe you remember John has a brother, James. James and John, sons of Zebedee, who left their nets to follow Jesus. Do you remember their calling and their following of Jesus? James and John, they're, they're brothers. It's James and John, same John that we're talking about here, that came to Jesus and asked foolishly if they can sit at his right and at his left hand when he enters into glory. You remember that? Same John, that was him and his brother James. Do you remember what Jesus said to them when they asked for that? They said, hey, can we sit at your right and left hand when we enter into your kingdom? And Jesus said to them, he said, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink, that this cup of suffering as he's kind of pointing forward? Remember their response? Yes, we will. We are. We are. And he looks back at him and says, guys, you will drink from the cup I'm about to drink from. But to sit at my right and left hand, I, I can't give that to you. I don't determine that. But I remember Dr. Tom Niehoff highlighting, he's like, catch that though. You will drink from the cup I'm about to drink from. James was the first of the disciples who was killed for following Jesus. Acts 12 records that about that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of Unlimited Red. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like they will ban you from the synagogues and some will kill you thinking that they're offering a service to God? Does that sound like our text? I can't even imagine what it would be like to lose a brother that way. But as awful as it was for John to lose his brother, that wasn't the end of it. Over the course of his life, every other disciple was killed for following Jesus. And they tried to kill John, they couldn't. And so they exiled him. But over the course of John's life, he watched every one of his friends die for following Christ. Which is why it always stops me whenever I'm reading 2 John and 3 John, that John wrote kind of in the latter years of his life when he doesn't even use his name in the opening greeting. He just signs 
the elder. Almost as if to say, I'm, I'm the only one left. And I remember Dr. Niehoff just looking at us and he said, which cup would you have rather had to drink in your life? Would you rather have been James who died right away? Or John who had to endure all of that for the sake of Christ? Guys, this is real life here. And the words that John is recounting that Jesus spoke to them are ripe with pain, and these pages are covered in tears. And you can look at it and start asking the question, like, where is hope? Like, where is hope in this? How does one endure such a life of trials? And if Jesus is like the eternal hero, where is he right now? And interestingly, it's, it's here. It's sandwiched between these two promises of persecution in chapter 15, 18 through 25, and then chapter 16, verse 2. There's just these couple verses here where Jesus purposefully, there's no, there's no accident here. This is where he deploys a promise of the Holy Spirit that parachutes in to rescue. It's here that we read in verse 26, chapter 15, right between these two things. That when the counselor comes, the one I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit right into this moment, this moment of trial, suffering, all of these promises. He says, just like the Father, like God the Father sent God the Son on a mission I now am sending God the Holy Spirit for this purpose, to testify to me. And because he's the spirit of truth, he testifies to the only truth, which is Jesus. The Holy Spirit operates like a spotlight, kind of shining on the star of the show, constantly pointing us to Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He testifies to Christ. And then he'll lay out here three ways in which the spirit testifies to Christ. It's beautiful here in chapter 16 what he does. But the first way that he highlights that the Holy Spirit testifies to Christ is he highlights that the Holy Spirit testifies to Christ through us. Through us. Read again in verse 26 and 27. He will testify about me. You also, right? There's no mistake that these things are back to back. He will testify about me and you also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. The Holy Spirit continues the mission that Christ began now through us. I love when I open the book of Acts, right? Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. I love the way that he starts the book of Acts when he says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. You catch that? Like he began to do. Essentially what Luke is saying is like, all that happened in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, all that I wrote about in my gospel, the gospel of Luke, that was just the beginning of what Jesus did. That's why my favorite way of like describing the book of Acts to somebody, if I could give just a subtitle of the book of Acts, it's just Jesus continued. Like all that Jesus began to do, this is just Jesus continuing his work and that's what we see here, that as we watch Holy Spirit people empowered 
empowered, they will continue the mission that Jesus started. That's what we see in Acts. That's what he's promising here, that the Holy Spirit will empower us and testify through us. That's one of the ways that the Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus. The second way that the Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus is he testifies to Jesus around us. Jump to verse 8, chapter 16. He says, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they don't, do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Church, it should be immensely comforting to us that even when we don't see it, the Holy Spirit is actively working in the lives of people around you, in your mom, in your dad, your brother, your sister, your classmate, your coworker, your grumpy neighbor. The Holy Spirit is always at work. And what he does is he's constantly at work convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. I think these three words are very important. He's helping the world understand that they are sinners before God and to feel the gap between their sin and Christ's righteousness, to realize there is an insurmountable gap between those two things. And because of that judgment, rightful judgment, that's what the Holy Spirit does. And so it should be a great comfort to us that everywhere that we go, not only does the Spirit promised to give us the words to say when we're talking to somebody else about Christ. But guys, no matter where we go or who we talk to, there's not a single person on this planet where the Spirit isn't already at work in some way in their lives. And so we get to be like Iowa farmers in the springtime who are ready to go out and plant seed, but we wake up one day, we look around us, and all the ground is already worked, thanks to God. Because that's what the Spirit does. He testifies through us. He's testifying around us, convicting the world everywhere we go. And lastly, we see that the Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus in us. In us. Verses 13 through 15 says this. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. And he will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. Twice in this text, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the counselor. Parakletos. That, that original word is hard to kind of peg into to like English, to like fit it into one word. Some translations will use the word like advocate, helper. Here we see counselor. I think counselor is a little bit too narrow. Like you think about a counselor that like gives advice or a counselor who would stand with you in like a legal trial and like advocate on your behalf. Like I think that's helpful, but I think it's a little too narrow. I think helper like is closer to it because it's a bit broad, but I, I love this. I saw this in one of the commentaries I read that said in one language in Central Africa, the word that is used here is literally meant the one who falls down beside us, 
That is to say, an individual who upon finding a person collapsed along the road, kneels down beside the victim, cares for his needs, and carries him to safety. That's the idea that Jesus was putting in the disciples' mind, that the Holy Spirit would find broken, repentant people, kneel to their level, care for their needs, and then carry them to safety. Is it beautiful? It doesn't just guide us. It doesn't just protect us. But he stoops down to our level and he carries us. And this Holy Spirit is so beautiful that if Jesus could be put on the spot, you could ask him, hey, Jesus, what would be better for us? To have you with us, like walking beside us, or the Holy Spirit in us, what would you say? He says it here. Verse 7, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. See, Jesus is recognizing that while he was on this earth, he was limited to a time and place. But now he is available to all people everywhere at all times through the Holy Spirit. It is better for us, which should blow our minds, to have the Holy Spirit in us than Jesus beside us. One of the primary ways that the Spirit cares for us, that he carries us, and one of the main ways that the Spirit testifies to Christ in us is that he guides us to truth. This is one of the major workings of the Spirit as highlighted in this this particular text. Again, go back to verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. And this truth that the spirit guides us into is not some abstract or personal truth. I think sometimes we can get that backwards, especially in our day and age, where we think of like truth as like relative to whatever. No, what the spirit is guiding to is to an external truth that stands for all people for all times. Particularly in the way that it was played out here as Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to them, the Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth that these men that he'd spent time with will eventually sit down and be filled with the Spirit and be carried along by the Spirit as they write these Spirit-breathed words. That's how it played out in their lives. Now for us, we get to open these scriptures, these Spirit-breathed scriptures And the Holy Spirit does his best work, people. When we open this book, we actually put eyes on it and ask for the Spirit to help us to see the truth, to continue to guide us into truth. If we keep this closed and just keep going like this, Spirit, help me. He's going, I did. (laughs) My work, me guiding you, and this book are not at odds. The Bible and the Spirit are not at odds, but they work together as the Spirit guides us into all truth. I want to take a moment, and I want to slow down just a bit, because sometimes when we talk about the Holy Spirit, it moves us beyond our comfort zones. Like that sometimes like the Holy Spirit talk can get into like, maybe too, it's too mystical for me, it's not abstract enough, I can't hold on to it, like what, what are we talking about here? So I just want to pause and like give you this, and as a good... Baptist pastor here, I'm just going to give you three words that all start with the letter A, 
about how to, how to walk with the Spirit in your life, okay? I think number one, and these are all just things from my life. Number one is just start with an awareness of the Holy Spirit. Christian, it's an incredible thing that at the moment of your surrender, when you trusted Christ for the first time for the forgiveness of your sins, recognizing that what he did on the cross, he did for you, when you trust in Christ for your salvation, God gives you the Holy Spirit in that moment. In that moment, we are instantly sealed by the Spirit as a down payment for our future redemption. We're given the spirit of adoption, this spirit within us that cries out, Abba, Father, that testifies that we are, in fact, God's children. This spirit of truth that guides us into truth, advocates for us, guards us, protects us, carries us. This spirit of holiness, right? It's in the name, holy. But the spirit of holiness who's actively working within us to convict us of sin, draw our attention to blind spots, to help us to repent and pointing to Christ regularly. The spirit that is constantly at work within us now, transforming us and conforming us into the image of God. The spirit that gives us God-given gifts by which we can serve and build up the church. The spirit that then emboldens us to testify to Christ no matter what season may come our way. It just starts with just an awareness of this gift that God has given you. And Christian, maybe you've lived a lot of life to this point unaware and your eyes are being opened here. Maybe some of you have even been resisting, which would be worse, resisting the spirit in your life. Stop. It starts with awareness of the Spirit of God that God has placed in you for you and for your good. Number two, ask. Ask the Spirit to do what Jesus promises he will do. This may be totally unheard of for you, but when I pray, I will actively pray to each member of the Godhead, each member of the Trinity. God, I thank you that you are sovereign and you are good in all circumstances. Jesus, thank you so much for dying for me, for sacrificing your life that I could find forgiveness, I could be reconciled with the Father. So I'll pray to God the Father, I'll pray to to the Son, but also pray to the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, Jesus promised that you would guide me into truth. As I open your word today, would you help me to see truth and cling to it? Holy Spirit, continue to work in my neighbor and then give me words today on like what to say, what to bring up, maybe how to bring it up but I wanna to talk to my neighbor about you. Would you soften his heart and would you give me words to say that maybe he'll cross from death to life today? Holy Spirit, would you do that work in me? Ask the Spirit to do what Jesus promises he will do. 
So start with awareness, ask, and then lastly, most importantly, act out. Trust the Spirit then to do what he promises to do. Don't just ask him, now trust him to do that. A couple verses that I love to just go to time and time again is Romans 8, 11, that reminds me that the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is now alive and at work within me. That's incredible. That this should give me confidence as I walk through this world, that as I act out and I trust the spirit that he can do eventually more than I could ever ask, dream, or imagine. I love also quoting 2 Timothy 1, 7. It reminds me that we didn't receive a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of sound judgment. I think also of Romans 8, 14 that says that we didn't receive a spirit to make us a slave and to fall back into fear, but we received a spirit of adoption. It gives us confidence, gives us boldness, so I can act out in confidence because the spirit is alive and at work in me and wants to work through me, is already at work in the world around me, And this is what he loves to do, is to point people to Christ, me and everybody else to Christ. As the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift that Jesus could possibly give us outside of his grace and mercy and reconciling us with the Father. They didn't give us the Holy Spirit as we navigate life, especially as we walk as redeemed people walking through a world of suffering. Jesus gave us an incredible gift in the Spirit. I want to jump back into the text here as we close things out. I want to jump back to verse 20, chapter 16, verse 20, because Jesus says this. He says, truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Like when a woman is in labor and she has pain because her time has come, but when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Church, as we walk through a world of suffering, we're motivated by this fact that we know Everything that we experience here is temporary. Whatever season you're walking through right now, as awful as it may be, will not last forever. And Jesus is pointing to this hope that is already secure as we see it played out with the cross. Yeah, it looked pretty dark and it was pretty bleak there for a while, but it was just a short time and then Jesus conquered the world in it. And so in this life, we'll have these temporary things that will flare up, this this reality that we walk through, these sufferings that are there, but take heart. Jesus has conquered, and the Holy Spirit is meant to continue to remind us of this unshakable hope that we have, bought by the cross, bought by the resurrection, that, yeah, you'll have suffering in this world. It's only momentary. See how he's been victorious and continue to walk confidently, church. And it's amazing here in verse 29 that the disciples, after looking at all of that, go, now you're speaking clearly. How many times had he speaking clearly to them to, before? And they just like didn't get it at all. And now for here, like this is where it's there. This ending is, is interesting. All this that surrounds verse 33. 
So I'm glad we started with this anchor. I want to give a little bit more context to it. Jesus responded to them, do you now believe? Indeed, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered from his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. The belief that we see here is a sincere belief. It says they believed him. And Jesus affirms that, do you, do you now believe? Okay. There's sincere belief here, but it is built on human courage and human strength. You go, how do you know that? Well, Jesus promised what's going to happen next. I, there's, there's genuine belief in you, but yet you won't even make it a few more hours without me. Where they're sitting, they're about to enter into that stretch where they're going to the garden, Jesus is arrested, they will all scatter, Peter will deny Jesus, and that moment of belief will have been as fleeting as a vapor. This is sincere belief, but this is built on human strength. It's merely human deep. This is what happens when we're left on our own. When we hear a phrase like, be courageous, and go, I just got to be tougher. I just got to be tougher. I want to compare these words with what happens just a few weeks later in their lives. Because if you go to Acts 4, there's this incredible moment where, where Peter and John have just healed a disabled man. And now they're brought before the same group of people that had just killed Jesus. This is what it says, that the next day the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. And after they had John, Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man and by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man standing before you is healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Just a few verses later then, Peter and John are released and it says, that after they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, 
You are the one who made everything in heaven and earth and in the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father, David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and why do peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you appointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing, signs, and wonders performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Chapter 16, Acts 4, same people, different courage. Different spirit. When we're called here, church, to recognize that in this world you will have suffering, be courageous. I have overcome the world. The courage that we're called to is not built on us, it's not about being tougher. It's about treasuring the gift of the Spirit that Jesus gives to each of us. And if we walk without the Spirit, we're limited to our own strengths and abilities. But when we let God carry us by the Spirit, ordinary people become extraordinary conquerors. And all of this is thanks to Jesus. If you are in the midst of suffering or hardships and you feel your inadequacy, be aware of the Spirit. Ask for the Spirit to work in you and around you, through you, and act out in the courage and the strength that the Spirit provides as we walk through this world. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for the gift of the Spirit. And for providing for us in every way. You paid the full price of our redemption But in that, it wasn't just a fresh start that now, okay, so now you got a new beginning. Now you go and you got to figure the rest out. No, you gave us the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to protect us, to seal us, to empower us, to give us words, to even work through us, to heal, to see miracles. And so we thank you that you haven't left us alone, but have given us an even greater gift than your own presence just walking beside us in life. You gave us your spirit, and we're thankful people. Thank you, God. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.